God is good, is he not? I want everybody to get a copy of Thursday night's CD because we're on something that we're going to be on for a while and today is part two of a series and I don't know how long the series is going to go but you need to get part one which is Thursday night uh, and it'll catch you up to speed. I want to talk to you this morning about the satisfaction of the soul. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 55 and when you get there say amen. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1. The satisfaction of the soul. Isaiah 55 verse 1. When you get there say amen. 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 This is what it says. Come all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? And your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good. And your soul will delight. Say, your soul will delight. Your soul will delight in the richest affair. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray your spirit would fall on this house. I pray that you would grant revelation that you would grant wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and insight. I pray that you'd break us free from every power of deception. And I pray that you would establish us in the truth. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The satisfaction of the soul or the delight of the soul. Now, I want you to understand something. There's a difference between the soul and the body. We've been really developing an an a theological anthropology. We've been developing a definition of what the human person is. And what we've discovered from the Bible is that the human person is composed of body, soul, and spirit. And there's a lot of misunderstandings and misconceptions about the relationships between the body and the soul and the soul and the spirit. And these misconceptions actually lead us into a place of bondage. Now... The thing you need to understand is that there's a difference between need and desire. Your body has particular needs, but it is your soul that desires. And oftentimes, certain desires that we attribute to the body actually have nothing to do with the body. They actually originate in the soul. And the soul uses the drives of the body as a vehicle or as a means of seeking to gratify itself. That is, the soul wants gratification, and it uses the desires of the body to do so. So your body needs food, right? Your body needs food, right? So your body needs food, but your body doesn't need tasty food. You see, when you're, when, when you're thinking about what you're going to eat and you start craving certain foods, that has nothing to do with your body. Yeah. You're trying to figure out what your soul craves. Your soul is craving a particular kind of gratification, and it simply is using the basic drive of your body to get it. Yeah. So you're sitting there contemplating, what do I want to eat? Do I want Italian? Do I want Mexican? Come on, somebody. Maybe I want me some barbecue ribs. It has nothing to do with the desire of your body. Your body doesn't need that. Your body needs some green vegetables, some simple carbohydrates, a little bit of protein, and a vitamin, and some water. But when you think about eating, you're not thinking about what the body needs. Actually, the soul will push you to continue eating long after the body is satisfied. 
Matter of fact, the body's going, stop. Don't you know how high your blood pressure is? Stop. Don't you know how high your cholesterol is? Stop. The body is going, you're killing me. But the soul says, I don't care. I'm going to get gratified regardless of what the consequences are. The soul will kill the body to get its desires gratified. The state of your soul, the condition of your soul, determines to a large extent the appetites of your body. Now, there are some people who are more manic and other people who are more depressive. Now, if you're manic, it means that when anxiety hits you, you go into overdrive. You start working twice as hard. If you're depressive, when anxiety hits you, you shut down. You won't get out of bed in the morning. If you're manic, you'll get up at 3 a.m. and work 18-hour days. If you're depressive, you'll sleep for 14 hours a day and not do anything. Now, certain people, when they get anxious, when, they, when they're under stress, when their soul is being taxed, their appetite leaves and they stop eating and they're losing all kinds of weight. Other people, their appetite goes into overdrive. They're eating twice as much as they normally do. Some people are manic sexually. Your wife is wondering, what happened to you? Where'd you go? What's going on? You haven't approached me? Come on, we're adults, right? Hello? It's not just a need of the body, it's a need of the soul. And your soul is crying out for satisfaction. Watch this. In Numbers, in Numbers chapter 21, verse 5. Now the children of Israel are grumbling against God and against Moses. And what do they say? Our soul loathes this worthless bread. What are they talking about? The manna. God is raining down bread from heaven, and the people say, my soul loathes this worthless bread. My soul hates it. Now, don't give me... Now, you've got to understand, if God is creating bread and raining it down from heaven, you better believe it's nutritious. You better believe it's exactly what your body needs. You better believe it satisfies the desire of the need of the body. It's nutritious, it's efficient, and it was probably delicious to a certain extent, but it didn't satisfy the craving of the soul. And they said, my soul loathes this worthless bread. My soul loathes this worthless bread. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 29, 8, he said, when a hungry man goes to sleep and dreams that he's eating. You ever done that? You ever been so hungry you dreamed you were eating? Especially while you were fasting, huh? <laughs> says when a hungry man goes to sleep and dreams that he's eating he wakes up and his soul is still empty when a thirsty man goes to sleep and dreams that he's drinking when he wakes up his soul still craves it's the soul that's empty it's the soul that craves it's the desires of the soul not the desires of the body now remember we said we talked about the body soul and spirit and the soul being the mind will emotions and strength and how they are inseparably connected to the body remember when you were in grade school you used to play centipede you ever play centipede get 15 people the one in the front and, and they all hold hands and the one in the front just kind of runs and he turns right here or he turns left and the, the guy at the back gets whipped around I mean his feet almost come off the ground and so he's just running. The guy at the front is just running and changing directions. And the guy at the back is just getting thrown and thrown around. The body is at the end of that train. It simply goes where the soul leads it. You don't have any desires in your body that are not linked to the soul. The mind is at the front. The mind turns right and the body gets whipped around. The mind turns left and the body gets whipped around. The mind goes into the flesh and the body's in all kind of debauchery. 
The mind goes in the spirit and the body is overtaken. That's why Paul, uh, David said in Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God forever. My soul longs for you. My body thirsts for you. Why? If the soul begins to long for God, the body can't help but thirst for him either. Why? Because the soul has turned into the spirit and the body's going to follow. See, there's too many Gnostic Christians out there. The Gnostics said, now the Gnostics were a second century heretical group. These were false believers, false Christians. They followed Plato and made a distinction between the soul and the body. Plato said that the body is the prison house of the soul. Plato said that the goal of the soul is to escape the prison house of the body. Make no mistake, the body is not the prison house of the soul, it's the playhouse of the soul. It's the place where every desire, every waking longing of the soul seeks to find gratification in the body. The, the soul plays with the body, plays in the body, uses the body for its own means. But the Gnostics made a sharp distinction between the body and soul to the extent that they said, my soul is holy, but my body's wicked. So the body, it may fornicate, commit adultery, it may cheat and lie, it may even get violent and slap somebody. But that's just my body. The body's evil. But my soul is holy. So even if my body's acting up doing all those things, that's just my body. My soul is holy. Make no mistake, your body can't do what your soul isn't doing. Whatever your body does, it started with the soul. They're too connected. They're interconnected. So that if your soul turns into the flesh, your body's going to follow. You say, well, I don't know how that happened. I don't know how I ended up with that woman in, that, in her bed. Your soul went there first. That's what happened. Your body simply followed the decisions of your mind. Make no mistake, whatever your mind embraces as truth, your emotions embrace as its focus, and your will embraces as its command. And your body just gets thrown in there, okay? So we're talking about the satisfaction of the body. Now, the satisfaction of the soul. The satisfaction of the soul. Now listen to this. Proverbs 29.7 says, A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. But to a hungry soul, every bitter, th every bitter thing is sweet. When, when you're hungry, everything looks good. It don't have to be good, it just looks good because you're hungry. You know, when you ever been, uh, <laughs> I, I know when we first come back from mission trips, now, different countries, the food is better in certain countries than others. It's more palatable for Americans. In Ethiopia, they eat nothing but bread and meat. And the bread is called injera, and it's kind of sour. The meat is delicious. But the bread is a little bit sour, and it's hard for us Americans to get used to. And so, I, you know, we can eat it for a while, and we get used to it, and we eat it, and we eat it, and we eat it, injera and meat, injera and meat, injera and meat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I start craving a cup of milk. And I'm not talking about no 2%, 1%, non-fat. I can't, you know, anybody who drinks non-fat milk has got a demon. Hey. <laughs> non-fat milk, that's just from Satan. And that 1%, that's a trick of the enemy. That's deception. 2%? No, no, no. I need pasteurized, homogenized, whole milk. Vitamin D, whole milk. I mean, if God wanted us to drink 1%, it would have came out of the cow that way. <laughs> I drink it the way God made it. 
But I start craving, but when, invariably, wherever I am in the world, as soon as I get home and I have that first tall glass of ice-cold, pasteurized, homogenized, vitamin D, whole milk, foster, I mean, uh, a dairy farm, foster farm, this chicken. <laughs> Thank God for chicken. Didn't have to do it, but he did. That first glass of milk, it's so delicious. It's like, this must be special milk. This was a good batch. This was a good year. That must, that, that cow, there's something about that cow. They got to figure out where that cow came from. I want more milk from that cow. But after a while drinking from the same gallon, a couple days later, I wake up and go, I just got me some regular old milk. It was just milk. But when the soul is thirsty, anything looks good. But when the soul is satisfied, it says the satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. Yes, it looks sweet, but I don't need that. You know, we're talking about fighting the desires of the flesh, and every believer wants to fight the desires of the flesh and resist the desires of the flesh and, and resist it and resist it, and i got to fight temptation and fight the devil and fight temptation. But when your soul is satisfied, you loathe the honeycomb. It's not, a, it's, listen, if you've got to fight it, it means you still crave it. Mm-hmm. Fasting in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29 is called the affliction of the soul. God said, on this day you will fast and, and in it you will afflict your soul. He doesn't say you're going to afflict your body. Why? Because taking a day off from eating doesn't afflict the body. The body's fine. Yeah. And especially most of us who got, you know, a little, mm-hmm, a little extra. I could go a long time and not afflict my body with fasting, but it afflicts the soul. Why? Because it takes away the soul's primary means of satisfaction. The soul says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to satisfy myself with food. In the morning, my soul wakes me up and says, go get that cup of coffee and pour in that, van- that French vanilla cream in it. Mix it up real good and make yourself a breakfast sandwich on a plain bagel with butter and a, and a slice of provolone cheese, an egg over medium and some avocado and, and a slice of ham and, and a slice of tomato and a little, little red onion and, and, you know, that, that, and then get you a, a nice yogurt, you know, a nice, a nice cup of yogurt and, and there's your breakfast, you know, I mean, my soul begins to make demands. But when I'm fasting, I wake up in the morning and my soul says, you know what to do. And I say, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. It's not the body that's afflicted. It's the soul that's afflicted. What's the point of fasting? The point of fasting is that it takes away the soul's primary vehicle of satisfaction. And now the soul has to be satisfied some way. And that's why prayer must be coupled with fasting. Because it's not just about afflicting the soul and taking away its source of satisfaction, but in prayer the soul is turned to the Lord. And, the, and now the Lord becomes the source of the soul's satisfaction. Remember David said in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now I looked at that word want in the Hebrew, and the word means to lack, to diminish, or to decrease. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack, I shall not diminish, and I shall not decrease. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall have no need. The Lord is my shepherd. There will be nothing lacking in my life, nothing outstanding. And when we hear that, the first thing we think of are the external things that we lack. The Lord is my shepherd and I need money and that means he's going to supply whatever money I need. The Lord is my shepherd and I need me a wife and so he's going to give me one. The Lord is my shepherd and I need a new place to live and so he's going to give me that. The Lord is my shepherd and my car is jacked up and so he's going to provide me with a new car. The first thing we think about is the supply of our external desires and our external needs but there's nothing in Psalm 23 about that. Nothing. He doesn't say anything about money, about cars, about houses, about wives, about how about this? The Lord is my shepherd and I'm lonely, so he's going to make people like me. There's nothing about that. Why? Because he's not talking about satisfying the desires of a soul that is lodged in the flesh. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 23 says he restores my soul he restores my soul you know why my soul doesn't want because the Lord restores it you know I looked at that word restore in the Hebrew you know what it is shuv look at your neighbor say shuv you know what it means it means to turn or to repent it's the same word as repent the Greek counterpart of it is metanoia Repent. When Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, David says, he causes my soul to repent. Wow. He turns my soul. I used to think it meant he replenishes my soul. He restores whatever's missing from my soul. No, no, no. God will not come to the soul that is lodged in the sinful nature and heal it there. He turns my soul, and he turns it out of its every desire, away from its connection to the flesh, and turns it towards him. And as my soul turns to the Lord and moves into the Spirit, I find there, in the Spirit, the satisfaction of my every desire. He turns my soul. We're constantly thinking of what we lack, and it has nothing to do with what we lack. It has everything to do with where our souls are positioned. Everything. He turns my soul. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and live. Circumcision is the cutting away of the foreskin. Literally, it's a metaphor for the removing of the flesh. Now, Paul speaks about the flesh as the sinful nature, not the physical body. It's not the cutting away of the physical body. It's the cutting away of the sinful nature. Circumcision of the heart. Moses says God is going to disconnect your heart from the flesh. That is, he's going to disconnect your heart from the sinful nature and move your heart into the spirit so that you may love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and live. Now watch this. In Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 2, the prophet says, The soul that sins shall die. He starts by saying, all souls are mine. The souls of the father, Ezekiel 18.4. The souls of the father and the souls of the sons. The souls of the fathers and the souls of the sons. He says, all souls are mine. 
When he says all souls are mine, what he means is that the human soul was created to be God's possession. And the satisfaction of the soul depends upon it existing in a place of possession, of divine possession. If your soul is not possessed by God, it is not satisfied. Augustine said the heart is restless till it finds its rest in you. So he says all souls are mine. And then he says the soul that sins shall die. Now when he says the soul that sins shall die, he's pointing back to the Garden of Eden when he points out this tree to Adam and Eve. He says every other tree in the garden is yours. But this tree... And the day you eat from it, you will surely die. Adam and Eve eat from the tree and they don't drop dead. The soul that sins shall die. Did you ever stop and, and wonder what he means by that? Because your soul actually can't die. Your soul is eternal. It's immortal. It's going to live forever, either in heaven or in hell. Your body dies, but your soul does not. But he says, the soul that sins shall die. What does he mean? Paul says, to be carnally minded is death. What he means is that the death of the soul is in its disconnection from God. Soul death is living in a state of relational disconnection from God. Amen. Jesus says, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. But he's talking to people who are alive, but living in a state of soul death. Because their souls are disconnected from the Lord. So Ezekiel says, the soul that sins shall die. Every time you and I commit sin, we are sinning against our own souls. It's a state, it is an act of suicide. James says in James chapter 5 verse 20, if anyone turns a sinner away from the error of his ways, he, he will save a soul from death. That is to be alive means to live in a place of connection with God. To walk in the Spirit is what it means to be alive. And to the extent that you and I are relationally disconnected from God, we're dead even while we live. Are you with me this morning? All right, we're going somewhere with this. Is that okay? So David says he restores my soul. He says in Psalm 34, 22, the Lord redeems the souls of his servants. You know what the word redeem means? We, said, we talked about this before. It means to buy back, right? We talked about how if, if Sean owed a debt to Gabe and he couldn't pay him, Gabe could come take one of Sean's sons as a slave and say, I'll just keep him as my slave until you pay the debt. Sean would then go out and sell his car, his house, his tools, his ladder, and his left arm if he needed to. To obtain the money he needed to pay that debt, he'd go to Gabe's house, pay it in full, and take his son back, and that's called redemption. David says, the Lord redeems the souls of his servant. Make no mistake, you have been bought with a price, and you are not your own. Your soul has been redeemed, and it wasn't with silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. That is, you were redeemed by the very blood, the very life of Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, he didn't just forgive you of your sins. He bought you. Are you awake this morning? He bought you. Means he owns you. 
He lays claim to your soul. Your soul belongs to God. The problem is we want to possess our own souls. All right? So David says he redeems the souls of his servant. Why was David able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want? Because he said in Psalm 25, 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. He made his soul an offering to God. At every place where the soul asserts itself, it must become an offering. Say, my soul is raging. That's why fasting is so powerful. I want to eat. You know, most, most believers can't fast more than 15 minutes. You weren't even hungry, but the moment you determined you were going to fast, all of a sudden you're starving. You don't even eat breakfast, but you wake up the first morning of the fast. <laughs> I, I love, you know, uh, um, Oscar was telling me we were doing a, a Daniel fast, a 40-day Daniel fast, and, and one of his daughters was like, I'm doing this. She was all excited. Yeah, I'm doing this. 40 days. The first morning she got up for breakfast. What are we having? And they had some chopped fruit and some stuff. And she's like, heck no, I need me some waffles. And she, was, she didn't last one meal. <laughs> I'm not going to say which daughter that was, but, you know, Aja, she, she, she's matured since then. But... <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just playing. But that's why fasting is powerful. It afflicts the soul. And the soul cries out. But the discipline is at every moment when my soul is crying out to you, O oh Lord, I lift up my soul. Making it an offering. He turns my soul, David says. He restores my soul. He causes my soul to turn, causes my soul to repent. The sign that your soul has turned away from the flesh and towards God is that your desire shifts. Now watch this. In Genesis chapter 34, I believe it is. Yeah. Genesis 34, the people of Israel, uh, Jacob and his sons... They're living near a city called Shechem. The father of that city, his name was Hamor, and his son's name was Shechem. So he named the city after his son Shechem. Now, Jacob had a daughter named Dina, and she was fine. And Dina, with her fine self, was walking through the city of Shechem by herself. Shechem the son of Hamor, saw Dina and he could not contain himself. He wanted her so bad, he had so little control over his soul that he raped her. Now Jacob finds out while his sons are still in the field, his sons find out, they come back to the house and they're enraged. Now they lose control over their souls. Now their souls begin to desire murder. Hamor comes out to talk to Jacob and his sons, and what does Hamor say? He says, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. You hear that? Sexual desire is not just the desire of the body. It comes from an incomplete soul. He says, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. You've got to look at it in the NKJV. In the NIV it says, my son has his heart set on your daughter. It says literally in the Hebrew, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter Dina. David says in Psalm 42, my soul longs for God. 
Hamor says, my son's soul longs for your daughter. David says, my soul longs for God. You see the contrast? Shechem's soul is so established in the flesh that he desires what the sinful nature desires and desires it so much that he's willing to commit rape to get it. David says, my soul longs for God. His soul has turned towards the Spirit so radically that all his soul desires is God. You say, well, I'm in the Spirit. What do you desire? What does your soul long for? What does your soul crave? You know, we talk a lot about being desperate for God. Do you know that God only responds to faith? He doesn't respond to desperate.